You're listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. Is there a thread that connects the past, the present, and the future? Out of the darkness into the light, I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. On this episode, a little later, some random thoughts and observations about Canary in the coal mine, Donald Trump and Michael Jordan, and one of the best dance scenes I've ever seen on broadcast TV. But first, my guests are Phil Keith and Tom Clavin, authors of All Blood Runs Red, Legendary Life, Eugene Bullard, boxer, pilot, soldier, spy. It covers two world wars, the jazz age, and the exceptional man who connects it all. And gentlemen, welcome to the podcast episode. Thanks. Thank you. All right. So let me throw the first question to uh, Phil Keith. When I read this book, there are many takeaways for me. But the first that jumped into my mind, my mind only, were two movies. Two movies jumped into my mind. Woody Allen Zelig and Tom Hanks in Forrest Gump. And I say that in a very positive way because your prologue is very cinematic. Tell us about the prologue in the beginning of the book about an air battle. Well, uh, Tom and I wanted to start out uh, the book with something that uh, we felt would be meaningful, obviously, and wanted to get uh, readers' attention uh, right away. And uh, since we think that one of the most unique aspects about uh, Gene Ballard and his uh, incredible life is the fact that... Uh, in, in the, you know, 1916, 1917, he managed to talk his way into the cockpit of a uh, uh, early fighter aircraft and uh, get out there in the skies over France and battle the Germans. And, of course, uh, he being a, a black man made him very unique, especially in those days. So we wanted people to get that sort of uh, mix in their heads and say, you know, what the heck is going on here? And, and how could this possibly happen? Especially uh, a young man who was actually the son of a former slave who came to France from, of all places, uh, uh, Georgia. Now, you were decorated Navy aviator, is that correct? Yes. So how much of your love of flying is kind of filters into this book and the narrative? Well, I never hesitate to uh, take an opportunity to try to write about aviation and aviation activities since it was such a, um, a meaningful part of my uh, early life and early career. So I'm always fascinated by these sorts of things. In fact, I only came across Gene Ballard when I was writing another book about uh, World War One, sort of a centennial a book of America's involvement. And in the book, there's a, a chapter on uh, American pilots who participated in World War One. I. I mean, some of the, the names come, come to mind right away, you know, Eddie Rickenbacker and uh, the Hat in the Ring Squadron and the 94th Aero Squadron and so on and so forth. And uh, I only discovered Gene Ballard from a footnote in uh, a book that I was doing. Uh, I'm sorry, the book that I was uh, using for, for my research 
uh, of some of these guys. And, you know, down at the bottom, it said um, when America came into the war in 1917, many of the American pilots who had been participating in the war, obviously flying for France, some for England and so forth. But the ones <clears throat> flying for France were invited to come to Paris and take a physical. And if they passed the physical, um, they would be offered commissions in in the uh, U.S. Army Air Service. And boy, everybody was excited about that. And uh, most of the Americans wanted to try out for that. And uh, Gene Ballard and 27 of his friends raced off to Paris and uh, took their physicals. All of them passed except one, even though he was designated physically fit right. for uh, aviation. Uh, obviously, uh, as a black man, they had no idea what to do with him. And uh, this footnote was all about how that happened. And I said, God, I, I'd never heard of this guy before. So that started my search and uh, our adventure with uh, Gene Ballard. All right. The book is called Old Blood Runs Red, The Legendary Life of Gene Ballard. Correct me, Phoenix. I mispronounced it initially. Boxer, pilot, soldier, spy. Tom Clavin, your role in putting this book together as co-author. What did you do in terms of research and how did you work out what I call the division of labor with Phil Keith? Well, I should mention right away that Phil did the definitely the vast majority of the research. Uh, I, I found out about this story because we have a mutual friend who's a newspaper editor named Joe Shaw of the Southampton Press News Group at the time. And uh, he had actually emailed, I, I received an email from him. He thought it might be an interesting story that I might want to do with uh, my frequent co collaborator, Bob Drury. Uh, and this was probably 2015, if I remember correctly. And Bob and I at the time were writing a book that, about a World War II uh, aviator, a bomber's B-17 story called that was published called Lucky 666. So it didn't seem like it would be something that we would go to after that. Right. But I've had the good fortune to be a friend of, of Phil's for quite a few years. And I think what happened was we were having a conversation and, and the name of Gene Bullard came up and Phil said, I've been starting to work on something like that. So we decided to collaborate and I still had some other things to take care of book wise. So Phil got a really good jump out of the gate to take care of a lot of the important research for this. And then that was basically the the, the boilerplate was set. Uh, he had begun the writing. And so when I came involved, it was a bit of catch up on my part. And and that's and and then we, you know, as I sort of caught up, we it, it wasn't a case of like, okay, I'll write a chapter, you write a chapter. You know, some authors do that, but right. Bill was the principal writer, and then I would sort of follow along and see if there are ways that I could do some revisions, fact-checking, uh, polishing here and there. So if you notice on the book, I mean, it, it says really says Phil Keith with Tom Clavin not, and Tom Clavin. And the reason why is because Phil did you know, the, the more of the heavy lifting on this book than I did, even though I'm very proud to be associated with it. Phil, I'm going to have another cultural reference. And I remember there was a singer called Johnny Rivers. Uh, he was going way back into the 60s. And one of his songs about the seventh son. What is the significance in terms of Eugene Boulard being the seventh son? What does that represent? Well, we think it goes back to sort of the, uh, we think it goes back to the Haitian culture. And there was a, a myth uh, among uh, the Haitian society of the 18th and 19th centuries 
that uh, surrounded the religious practices that were common in Haiti and, and a lot of magic and superstition. And I mean, you can see some of that today in the Creole culture, obviously, in, in New Orleans and right. Louisiana. And Gene uh, <laughs> Ballard's father uh, had this mystical idea uh, around lucky number seven. And uh, he and his wife actually had 10 children. Um, and Gene uh, was the seventh of the 10. And so his father immediately attached that lucky seven mystical uh, aspect uh, to his, uh, his seventh child, who turned out uh, to be a son. It, it sort of gave him favor in his father's eye, and it really attached to his early life and his early days, uh, Gene believing that he could probably do more than he was born with, than he was given. And it really pushed him, I think, uh, to initially go on his incredible quest and uh, work his way into the wonderful history that he helped create. You know, Tom, in terms of the history of America, because you spent a lot of time also writing about the, the great old West and gunfighters mm -hmm. and everything else, the religions, I think you're trying to set straight the legends. But in terms of Eugene and going back there, in the history of this country, there were black jockeys, very successful black jockeys. How did he become a jockey? Well, he, Gene was open at this particular time in his life. He had run away from home. He was wandering uh, through the southeast of the United States, uh, looking to, to make enough money, eventually find it. His goal was to go to France. I mean, he was 12, 13, 14, 15 years old and before he stowed away and, and actually eventually got to France. But he was looking to make money any way he could. He was, to some extent, depending on the kindness of strangers. He was not a strapping 20-year-old young man. He was, a, he was an adolescent. He was a teenager. Now, thankfully, he, he was not a tall person. He was phys physically fit, but, you know, a jockey is not supposed to be too tall. That's, that's kind of a drawback. So, uh, and he also seemed to have so much natural ability to adapt himself to whatever challenge was given to him. This was a lifelong thing, it turned out. When he was got, got a job, you know, working for somebody who raced horses and who raced horses, that's where you can make some, some money. I mean, you, you can make more money as a jockey than you could, you know, cleaning out the stables, which he did. He did, too. So that's how he got that opportunity. But I think, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because that really represents his character that when presented with an opportunity, when presented with a challenge, his attitude was not, oh, that's too daunting, or I could never do that. His talent was, his talent was, give me a chance and I'll figure out a way to do it. And that, a, a jockey was just one of the earliest ways that he did that. Nelson DeMille wrote a story of courage and triumph. We're talking about the book, Old Blood Runs Red, The Legendary Life of Eugene Ballard, boxer, pilot, soldier, spy. It's also a traffic epic, Phil Keith. Would I be correct in saying that? Because it took him a while to get from where he grew up in Georgia to France. How did he do that? Well, as Tom said, he uh, had this uh, uh, vague idea of... Uh, I, I must get to France. And again, he had picked this up from his father and his father had uh, learned, we don't really know how, but somehow absorbed the idea, which was true, that uh, blacks were treated much differently in France than they were in America at the time. He, the father, uh, always talked about uh, 
wouldn't it be wonderful to get to France and become part of French society? And that idea just firmly planted itself in, in Jean's head. And even from the age of five or six or seven, he had pretty much decided he was going to go to this magical place called France, although he had no idea whatsoever where it was and how he was going to get there. Now, when he was traveling around the South after he ran away from home and picking up these various jobs, uh, as Tom described, uh, uh, racing horses, working with uh, owners of horses, uh, so on and so forth. Uh, he kept moving, although very slowly in terms of uh, miles, uh, but he kept moving slowly toward uh, places which would allow him possibly to get to France. And eventually he stowed away on a, uh, a train. He, he literally jumped underneath a, a rail car and rode uh, from uh, basically the uh, Atlanta area up to uh, Newport News, Virginia, hopping a couple of trains. And that was the first time he'd seen the Atlantic Ocean, the great body of water that uh, he was looking for. And so he figured, gosh, France must be somewhere in that direction. So he uh, made friends with uh, some German sailors, although he didn't know they were German at the time. And running errands for them. And they said, all right, well, we're taking off tomorrow. Thank you very much. And he decided to stow away on the ship. He said, all these ships are, must be going somewhere and they're right. probably all going right. to France. Well, he jumped aboard and uh, lo and behold, three or four days out to sea, um, he couldn't stand life hiding in the lifeboat anymore. And he uh, jumped out and the crew discovered him. And then he <laughs> realized that not only was it not a French crew, it was a German crew. And not only was it they were not going to France, they were going to uh, Aberdeen, Scotland. But uh, anyway, that uh, took him closer. And again, he's moving uh, as, uh, as he can to, to get to his ultimate goal. I'm Larry Davidson. This is the podcast, Artful Periscope. I want to jump ahead a little bit with Tom Clavin because a, a fascinating part of the story is how his involvement with World War I and also joining the legendary French Foreign Legion. There's been a lot of movies, a lot of books about the French Foreign Legion. It's still, it's, it's mythic in a lot of people's minds. So what brought him, Tom Clavin, to the French Foreign Legion? You know, you think about some of the old Hollywood movies like Beau Geste, for example. Right, like that, right. Those kind of pictures, uh, The Four Feathers, things like that. Um, in the case of uh, when, when war broke out, uh, World War I broke out, uh, and Eugene had to wait until his 19th birthday, which was October 1914, and he enlisted. Because he was a foreign-born person, he could not enlist in the regular French forces. So he could enlist in the French Foreign Legion. Uh, it's kind of a technical thing, but it, 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 what, it, what, what made it especially interesting is he joined an outfit that had people from all around the world who either by happen chance, happenstance or on purpose were in the French Foreign Legion fighting against the Germans, you know, as the war was intensifying. And so he had to go through rigorous training, although it was speeded up a bit because, you know, they, they just needed more and more people to get shot at the front. So let's train them fast and get them up there so they can become cannon fodder. He, he saw some really serious action, including the Battle of Verdun, 
he was wounded. Uh, he uh, received battlefield promotion. He received medals. And uh, it was it was you know during one of these battles, I believe, was at Verdun that he was finally wounded so seriously that he had to be evacuated. Uh, eventually, went back to Par- was brought back to Paris to to fully um, uh, recuperate. And basic for him, the war could have been over. He could have sat the rest of the war out. He still felt this debt to France because they're welcome to him and had treated him differently than 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 a black man was treated in the United States. And uh, and also there's a conversation about becoming a, fi- a, a, a combat pilot. And uh, it was sort of like a dare that a couple of his friends made. He said, I'll, I'll take that bet. Uh, I'll, you know, it was a bet was $2,000. He said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to join the, the Air Corps and I'll be back here to collect that bet. And off he went. And sure enough, he did become a pilot working for the, you know, eventually ending up in the Lafayette Escadrille. Oh, no, back to Tom Clavin, who is the aviation expert. When I was a kid, I used to make model airplanes and model cars. And I'm not being too flippant, but I believe some of the model airplanes that I made were more secure and more sturdy than some of the planes that Eugene Boulard flew in. Tell us about what he flew in. And he had a very interesting co-pilot, by the way. Yeah, he sure did. Well, by the time uh, Gene was ready to to take this on, it was late 1916, early 1917, when he finally got to flight training. Training um, in a serious fashion, he he started out flying a plane that the French uh, called the Penguin. And the Penguin, just like a regular Penguin, was a flightless aircraft. In other words, it had no wings. It was simply a fuselage with a motor attached, which they used to train the students to taxi around the field. And they figured if they could taxi around the field and and not uh, crash and and kill themselves, that maybe they would be able to start to fly a plane with uh, real wings. He did, and he did quite well. And he ended up uh, flying the relatively new SPAD aircrafts. And, And you're right, Larry, I mean, these things were held together with uh, you know, the proverbial bailing wire and, and you know, lacquered cloth and, and struts that uh, were, were basically uh, strengthened sticks. The, the engines were noisy and uh, the pilots had uh, no real protection other than this little tiny windscreen from, from all the, the wind. Uh, there was no heating in the cockpits. It was just a, a real crate. And it was a uh, incredible uh, experience to fly, obviously, um, but it was not comfortable and it was uh, relatively unsafe. Uh, the pilots didn't even carry parachutes, uh, even though the parachute had uh, been invented for it had been around for many years. But it was kind of one of these macho things where to bail out of an airplane was sort of a cowardly act. Right. And until they figured out that, this was not a way to survive many, many encounters, and, and it was much more expensive to train a new pilot than to buy them a parachute. Then they started using them. But, but Gene had a friend along on most of the flights that uh, he flew. Uh, he uh, came back from a weekend in Paris, uh, which were apparently frequent. And, uh, of course, in Paris, everybody had a good time and drank champagne. And he woke up one morning, and at the end of his bunk was a little uh, capuchin monkey. 
And uh, he vaguely remembered having won this monkey in a poker game in Paris. And he, he decided he would make a little Jimmy, as he called him, his co-pilot. So he had his uh, ballet uh, make uh, Jimmy a small flying suit, complete with uh, you know fur trimmings and uh, small boots. And Jimmy, for some <laughs> strange reason, always loved going up with Gene in his aircraft, even though the conditions were uh, often uh, uncomfortable. I want to switch ahead because there's so much in this book to cover. I'm Tom Clavin. After the war, the Roaring Twenties hit Paris, as, as well as America. So what was life like for Gene Boulard and other African-Americans when the t- Roaring Twenties came to Paris? Because across his experience, so many famous people came through his life in the clubs that he managed and owned. That is a book in itself. So let's kind of touch upon those years after the war, Paris in the 20s and the 30s, and what he experienced as an African-American man. Well, most of it was very exciting uh, that, uh, you know, he'd come back from the war. He became a jazz musician. He was getting jobs working in, in, in clubs. Uh, he had a, a, a really a, a natural aptitude, it seems, of, and a lot of charisma, personal charisma. So he was working his way uh, up up the ladder at these clubs, becoming manager of clubs, work, you know, play, continuing to play in bands. And uh, he started to meet, uh, especially when he became the manager of, of Le Grand Duc and, and eventually a club called Escadrille, the owner of it. Uh, you had a lot of American expatriates. Uh, Hemingway, he knew for uh, Selden, Scott Fitzgerald, uh, Cole Porter, um, there. Uh, uh, Josephine Baker, uh, Bricktop was somebody he, he brought over from the United States to to perform in his club, and uh, and it was it was a very exciting time. And the the champagne flowed, the music played, people stayed out all night. He even uh, invested and became the owner of a gymnasium so that uh, the next day they could sweat out all the alcohol from the night before and be able to go again. So. Uh, <clears throat> It was exciting. Uh, one of the things we do portray in the book, though, that was a bit of a drawback is that because you had a lot of people coming from the United States as expatriates to be part of that scene in Paris, uh, quite a few of them also came from the South. And there was some conflict because uh, certainly by this time, uh, uh, Gene Bullard was 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 accustomed to being treated in a respectful manner. You know, he was treated in France differently than in America. And then, but when you started to have a, a, a more and more of an influx of people from the South, they were not accustomed to treating black men in the same way that French people treated black men. So there were, and Gene was not somebody who was going to, you know, just let the insults and, and disrespect, you know, be like water off a duck's back. So there were, there were brawls that Gene got involved in, fights, there were conflicts. That part of it was the more unsavory element of it, but it was otherwise an exciting time to be in Paris, to run the nightclubs, to play, to be jazz, surrounded by jazz. It was also at a time when he uh, got married and, and started a family. So for Jean Berlard, the 20s into the 30s was, was uh, you know, a, a, a mostly joyful time. Uh, Phil Keith, towards the back end of the 1930s, there was the rise of Nazism. And it seems like Eugene Berlard was aware of what was coming while working in a club with somebody called Kitty Terrier, was he also helping the underground in a sense was an on-scene spy for the French resistance? Is that, is that an accurate assessment of what he was doing in that time frame? 
Yes, in fact, um, he'd been approached by a, an inspector of the Paris police force who was also working with the French underground uh, pre-World War II. And the inspector um, had noticed that many of the Germans who were infiltrating Paris were uh, ending up in, in the nightclubs, and especially his nightclub. And, and um, he came to Gene one day and, and asked him if he would uh, consider uh, working with uh, the French intelligence folks. You know, if he just happened to hear anything or he picked up any interesting conversation, uh, would, would you please pass it along? The inspector, of course, also knew about Gene's experience during World War I, and he, he truly was uh, a hero of France and known as a great hero of France, not only in the trenches, as Tom described, but uh, also in the air. And uh, Gene, uh, a avid Francophile, uh, readily agreed and said, I'll do it, but you must make me one promise. And, and the inspector said, uh, well, what would that be? And he said, well, if anything happens to me, you must take care of my two daughters and uh, get them out of here and get them back to whatever relative, whichever relatives I have remaining uh, in America. And the inspector agreed. And that started uh, Gene's uh, spy career, working with uh, Kitty, whose <laughs> who's, uh, real name was Cleopatra. I mean, <laughs> can't make that up, can you? You, can't, you no. can't, can't make that up. What what better name for a spy, especially a pretty, you know. Uh, and, and Tom and I have always thought from the beginning, and actually it was Tom's idea, and I think it was a, it was a, it was a very prescient one, that uh, Gene Ballard to us seems sort of like the black Rick Blaine of Casablanca. You know, Larry, you're talking about movies that reminded you of, uh, of this uh, guy. But, uh, you know, we've got uh, the cafe owner, we've got the spying going on, we've got the pretty femme fatale, we've got the Germans coming in, and uh, very much uh, feels, feels the same. He did that for uh, a good part of two, three years before the invasion of Paris. All right, because uh, Tom mentioned that Dooley Wilson is part of your story in the book and is also, in a sense, an inspiration for Casablanca. Uh, Tom Clavin, is that accurate? Well, it's one of those amazing things that we did not anticipate because we were talking about uh, Bullard being sort of like the Black Bogart in the early stages of this book. And then as part of the research, uh, we find out that one of the musicians that Bullard actually employed in his nightclub was named Dooley Wilson. And a few years later, Dooley Wilson would be the piano player and at Rick's place in the movie Casablanca, who sings, you know, uh, uh, the, the famous song uh, that's, that, 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 that people know from Casablanca. You, know, must, you must remember this. And, and again, you just mentioned you can't make this up. You can't make this up. This, is, this, was, this was telling us we were right on target to think of Bullard and, and his fashion. I'm Larry Davidson. This is the Artful Periscope. I guess our terrific guests, Phil Keith and Tom Clavin, authors of All Blood Runs Red, Legendary Life for Eugene Bullard, Boxer Pilot, Soldier Spot. I'm going to tell my director, there's so much more I want to cover. So we're going to go into a little bit of overtime, if you guys don't mind. And I want to touch upon now of Phil Keith, his experiences in World War II. He's not a young man anymore, mm -hmm. but he wanted to fight again. 
What did he try to do, Phil Keith? Well, uh, when the uh, Germans um, finally did march into uh, Paris <clears throat> in early 1940, unfortunately, uh, Jean felt that uh, between his loyalties to France and his spying activities, which the Germans were beginning to figure out, um, that he better, you know, close up shop and, and uh, try to... Uh, get away. <clears throat> so sadly, he had to close his club and his gym. And um, he knew nothing uh, other than to try to help his country once again, as he had in World War One. So uh, tearfully saying goodbye to Kitty and uh, his two daughters, he uh, shouldered a backpack uh, filled with uh, a few cans of sardines and some cigarettes and a canteen full of water and another one full of wine and decided to march out of Paris and try to find his old unit from World War One. Right. And if he could find his old infantry unit, he would volunteer to fight. Now, at this time, he's 44 years old and uh, a bit long in the tooth to go back uh, uh, marching with uh, the infantry. But he was also in great physical shape, so this is what he wanted to do. He got, I guess, about 50 miles from Paris, headed east, and ran into some other old veterans, and they told him that his old unit had already been uh, wiped out and uh, any remaining soldiers captured by the Germans. So he turned around and went south and ended up in uh, Orléans, and in Orléans, he found a unit that was still fighting the uh, the Germans. And lo and behold, the commander of the unit was none other than his lieutenant from his uh, uh, experiences way back in World War One, when he was uh, fighting with uh, the 170th. So uh, his old lieutenant, now a major, said, if you can still pick up a machine gun, uh, you're more than welcome to join us, which is exactly what he did. And uh, once again, started to fight. Uh, unfortunately, uh, it was already a losing battle as far as the French were concerned. And the Germans were just overpowering the French everywhere. Uh, one day he uh, got caught in a uh, rocket barrage and uh, blew him up against the side of a building and he was, you know, cracked a bunch of vertebrae and um, his back was injured and knocked about the head. And, you know, uh, once again, he's he's wounded and uh, he's in he's in deep trouble. So I, I want to jump, jump ahead a little bit, if, if you guys don't mind, with your permission. Um, sure. He came into the country illegally, in a sense, when he came and ended up originally in Paris, France. He has no passport, Tom Clavin. He wants to go back to America. He has no passport. What did he do to get back to America? Well, uh, picking up a little bit where Phil left off, I mean, Gene had to be basically smuggled out of France. Uh, and he, 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 by bicycle, by walking, however way, hitching rides, he got through France, he got to Spain, he eventually got to Lisbon, another connection to Casablanca, you know, people the last plane from Lisbon. Right. He got one of the last boats leaving Lisbon. So uh, he was able to get whatever whatever paperwork he needed to to get him on that boat that took him to the United States. And for him, 
it's 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 not a happy ending because there was still much more to go. It also was he didn't know what kind of country am I going to. He had left it decades before, so he was going back to the country he had run, once run away run, run away from. He was also having to leave his daughters behind in the care of Kitty and the French Resistance. Would he ever see them again? So that's one of the suspenseful parts of the book. He's he's having to, be, to save his own life. He's smuggled basically on a boat that takes him across the ocean, hoping his, he'll reunite with his daughter someday. Another great story, I'm jumping in and go back to uh, Phil Keith. He's back in America. He's working in an elevator at Rockefeller Center, which goes up to where the Today Show is. <laughs> Got some medals on. And once again, this is all about recognition. This is why your book is so important. I knew nothing about him. Mm. Not much also about what was going on with World War I prior to uh, the United States getting involved. So this is a fascinating book from that end. On this elevator, the host of the Today Show, David Garraway, David Garraway gets on. Take us from there. It's a terrific story in terms of recognition, finally, in a sense, for this amazing man. Well, it, it, Gene was not um, unknown to, to Garraway and many other occupants of uh, Rock Center who had been riding up and down in his elevator for uh, some months. And, and Gene had a habit of uh, taking one or maybe two of his many decorations and medals from World War One, and just wearing them on his uniform. And, and nobody really seemed to understand why he was doing that. And nobody recognized uh, many of the or any of the decorations because they were French to begin with. And that's something that's not terribly familiar to, to most Americans. But this particular day, Gene was wearing um, his newly acquired uh, Legion of Honor, which is France's highest decoration. And he had just been decorated with this uh, by the uh, French consul in New York. And uh, it caught Garraway's eye. And, and he finally said, Gene, what, what is that you're wearing? And he said, well, Mr. Garraway, that's, that's the Legion of Honor. And Garraway said, how on earth, not that, you know, I don't think you're a great guy, but how on earth did you happen to get one of those? And he began to tell him the story. Well, you know, it started in World War I, and then uh, partly for my spying activities against the Germans in World War II. And Garraway said, oh, please. It, uh, this is an incredible story. Come on, you're coming with me. And uh, took him off the elevator down to his office. And then the whole story came out. And Garraway said, yeah, you got to come on my show. So five days later, uh, Gene Ballard is on the Today Show. And it's being broadcast to, obviously, uh, all of America. And it was really the first time that he had received any significant recognition for his life in his native country. And it wasn't like, you know, it, I guess you could say it was his, his 15 minutes of fame, right. you know, in, a, in his own country. But obviously he deserved a lot more than that. And because of that show, he began to get it, which uh, was fortunate. I have two more questions. My last question for, um, Tom Clavin is a craft question. Question: In terms of the research, it's a phrase called "hiding in plain sight." Was there something staring you in the face you didn't know about, and finally said, "Aha! This is an important aspect that I have to bring into the book." 
I think uh, an important aspect I'm glad we brought into the book is that, uh, and we have we have actual photographs of it happening, is Gene Bullard as an early pioneer in the civil rights movement in the United States. Because our story could easily have ended when he returns from uh, to the United States, gets off that boat during World War II, and lived a quiet life. Well, he, <clears throat> uh, one of the... Uh, pivotal events in his life, and I think in, in the life of, of American history, again, he happens to be involved. He, you mentioned Zelig at the top of the hour. I mean, he keeps popping up in these events in American history. And there's a concert that Paul Robeson is giving in Peekskill, New York. Right. And, and Eugene Ballard is, is, is one of many, many uh, uh, black men and women who are taking buses up from New York City to see this concert. But because of, of Rosen's controversial nature, there's there's state police, there's local police, there's uh, uh, other other elements who don't want to see this concert happen because they don't. They, and and so as as these black men and women are getting off the buses, they're being surrounded, they're being intimidated. And Ballard is one of those who's actually being beaten. He's being beaten and kicked. We have this footage of this, and we have a photograph in the book on the ground being beaten by police officers just because he wanted to attend a concert. And what he and he when they stop beating him and move on, he gets up and he he staggers. He's going to go see that concert no matter what. He starts staggering to that arena and people get in line and follow him. And they basically break through that 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 ominous, dangerous, hostile crowd to go see the concert. So that was something where we 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 were. I think Phil and I were both gobsmacked to not only find out about this story, but to have the visual evidence of it too. So we're so glad that we could even even when he's back in the United States, his story has not ended. All right. My last question for Phil Keith, we'll go back to the beginning of a cinematic moment. This is happening in a gathering in New York City and involves three people. Josephine Baker, Charles de Gaulle and Eugene Ballard. Tell us about that, because it's uh-huh. very emotional and in my mind, it's an interesting coda for the way we started this particular interview. Bill? Well, it's a nice uh, sort of cycling back to uh, Gene's uh, finest uh, hours. Um, this was um, in 1959. It was at the very end of the Eisenhower years. And uh, President de Gaulle of France was coming to the States to meet with Eisenhower uh, one last time to strategize on what they were going to do about uh, the Russians and the Cold War and the Iron Curtain and so on. But while de Gaulle was visiting, he was going to come to New York, a big French population in the city, and um, he wanted to um, sort of hook up with the people who had helped him during World War II when he was in exile. So there was this big gathering at the 69th Street Armory, and uh, Gene had just prior to that been uh, decorated with his Legion of Honor. And uh, into this gathering, you know, uh, Eugene comes in with his uh, French Foreign Legion uniform on and all 15 of his medals, and de Gaulle recognizes him right away. And, and comes over to him and uh, basically gives him a big bear hug and thanks him for his uh, service to the country. And at uh, the same time, uh, Josephine Baker, who had um, actually 
given up her American citizenship during World War II and become a citizen of France, but came back to America, was also uh, part of this uh, ceremony, and she too also received uh, the Legion of Honor. So, uh, and it was a reunion of sorts between Josephine and Jean. They had spent uh, several years together in the sense of performing in in the clubs uh, during the uh, late 20s and uh, 30s. So, it was uh, almost a surreal moment when these three uh, very connected and important people uh, got together, and it was for the very last time because Gene didn't know it, but he was already uh, afflicted with the uh, cancer that was going to kill him. Um, my guests have been Phil Keith and Tom Clavin, authors of Old Blood Runs Red, The Legendary Life of Gene Ballard, Boxer, Pilot, Soldier, Spy. It covers two world wars, the Jazz Age, and the Exceptional Man. Uh, gentlemen, thank you so much. Appreciate your time. Thank, thank you, Larry. I'm Larry Davidson. This is the Artful Periscope. After the break, some random thoughts and observations. Stay with us. The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com. I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome back to Artful Periscope. On this segment, some random thoughts and observations. First, I want to talk about what I call the canary in the coal mine. If you've been following Governor Cuomo, he raised that in conjunction with New York State being the canary in the coal mine in terms of COVID-19. I believe that comedians really address social commentary. I'm going to go back in time to a very controversial comedian, Lenny Bruce. Lenny Bruce said many years ago, when the Berlin Wall comes down and the Iron Curtain falls, America's going to turn its hate inward. It was always focused on the Soviet Union. And I think he was prescient because right now we see it today. It would become very tribal. Certain segments of the American population hate other segments of the population. And we become a country of others. On a previous episode of Artful Periscope, we talked about the plot against America, the HBO limited series in the book by Philip Roth. And that addresses the Jews. The Jews were others in a certain time frame. There's a great new I think it's on Showtime or HBO. I'm sure I'll get letters and cards that I get this wrong, but it's called Penny Dreadful. And it's in a new season. It's taking place. It's called The City of Angels. And it's in LA about 1938. And the others are the Chicanos, the Hispanics. So once again, these issues are being raised. Who can you go after as the others? In today's world, it's still the Jews. It still can be Hispanics. It still can be Muslims. And in a general sense, it's also people of color. And now the others, interestingly so, are, with the epidemic, senior citizens and minorities. They are the ones that can be disposable. 
collateral damage. Why do I say that? Why do I say that? Because I'm looking forward to maybe a decade from now when the historians write about the inside of the Trump administration being a fly in the wall. And I'm sure they're doing a cost risk benefit analysis in the inner circle. How many lives can we lose and still open up the country in terms of what I call in the animal kingdom, the thinning of the herd? And now it's coming out in the open because Bill O'Reilly said it. Well, they're basically old in terms of senior citizens. They're on their last legs. Just let them go. Let them go. Now, in the animal kingdom, they did that with uh, wild horses and deers and wolves. They had to cull out the herd for the benefit of the ecosystem. But writing off senior citizens, minorities. Now, think about this for a second. There was a story in mid-May in the New York Post about a man living in Staten Island, New York, one of the five boroughs. Well, owns a sign company. He's quoted as saying, without giving his name, once again, this is mid-May 2020, that 80,000 people have died. I don't care if another 80,000 people have to die to open up the country. They will be considered heroes. I will say it again. 80,000 people have died. I, I can accept another 80,000 people dying because those next 80,000 will be American heroes. Well, if you are a family member of one of those next 80,000, you're not getting a gold star in your window. Yes, they, they, they give up their life, but this is where the country is going again, us against them. Now, in the great old days of gang wars in, in L.A., South L.A., South Central L.A., if you were a blood, you had, you had a certain color. If you were a member of the Crips, you had another color. Now what's happening, and this is really interesting to me, but it's, it's troubling me greatly, that if you wear a mask, you're anti-Trump. If you don't wear a mask, you're a Trump supporter. The country's being divided again by the fact that the president of the United States refuses to wear a mask. It's not a good look. Now, people are saying, well, my leader won't wear a mask. I don't have to wear a mask. And it's in Congress. You look at some of the hearings in the House, Democrats are wearing a mask or a bandana. The Republicans refuse to wear a mask. And this is the message that's being sent. And it's really, really troubling to me. Now, I want to jump ahead a little bit. I'm going to compare and contrast. Remember the days where you were in high school, if you can remember that far back, or you were in college and you had to write the essays, compare and contrast. It's usually a context of a history course. So I'm going to talk about Michael Jordan and Donald Trump. Similarities and differences. Because the, right now, the last episodes of The Last Dance have finished on ESPN. Ten episodes. And as a sports fan, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And it, it's got a lot of responses, pro and con. But I'm going to bounce off the title, The Last Dance. And Phil Jackson did something really interesting in episode 10. That he had a ceremony with the last time he's going to be with that last team, the Chicago Bulls, for their last championship, 
the third in a row when Michael Jordan came back. He had a ceremony, he had a ritual because he believes in ceremonies and rituals. He's a fascinating guy. He's much more than an athlete, a basketball coach. He's a guy who's very, very eclectic in his worldview. And what he asked every player to do, write something on a piece of paper, going to come back together, and you're going to read what you wrote. And then we're going to put everything that you wrote in a coffee can, and we're going to set it on fire and turn the lights out. That's the end of the last dance. My question to you is, in the next inauguration, who will be having the last dance? I will leave it at that. America is known as being red, white, and blue. The color of the Chicago Bulls, not the Bears, the Bulls, is black and red. Donald Trump has a big problem with anything that is blue in terms of blue state. He loves anything that's red, that's a red state. But white separatists love Donald Trump, the red, the white, and the blue. Both Michael Jordan and Donald Trump needed slights to fuel themselves. And uh, I'll refer back to the correspondence dinner when Barack Obama was president of the United States and threw some shade at Donald Trump. And some people believe that was the genesis of saying, aha, I'm going to get back at Barack Obama. I'm going to claim he was never born in America. and this is my way, and I'm going to run for president, and this is the way that I'm going to pay back Barack Obama, in a sense, for throwing shade at me during the correspondence dinner. Also, another, I guess, similarity. Um, both love, in a sense, casinos and gambling. Both love playing golf. But the difference is, once again, my opinion, and my opinion only, Donald Trump likes to gamble the lives of Americans with COVID-19. Michael Jordan has been driven by excellence. Donald Trump has been driven, driven for money and power, no matter what the cost. Michael Jordan, through leadership, is looked to and has elevated others. Donald Trump, through the lack of leadership, demeans and punishes others. And I remember when he made fun of Rosie Donnell and body shamed her. And I also remember the first time, once again, getting back to Canary in the coal mine, to my early days as a special education teacher. And when I saw him, when he was candidate Trump, demean in a very mean, mean way mocking a disabled New York Times reporter. For me, for me only, but maybe from some others, that was the canary in the coal mine saying, this is the direction that Donald Trump wants to take this country. This is the essence in his heart and his soul, how he picks on other people who can't respond to him. Michael Jordan liked to impose his will on others, both teammates and opponents. Donald Trump forces others to bend to his will. 
Michael Jordan believed he can control the outcome of a basketball game. Donald Trump tries to control the fate of America through lies, distortions, and distractions. Both Michael Jordan and Steve Carr are over six feet. In one of the episodes, there was an altercation in one of the practices, and it was heated. And it got to the point, once again, both pretty big men, because I'm nowhere near six feet. So anybody any, uh, uh, higher than, taller than me is a big man. Um, Michael Jordan punched straight ahead Steve Kerr in the face during the altercation, during the practice. Donald Trump likes to punch down through Twitter, press conferences, especially if you're a minority female reporter. That's how he gets back at you. He punches down at you. Michael Jordan can be an athletic bully towards teammates, but I respected those who stood up to him. Once again, I'm referring to Steve Kerr, the current coach of the Golden State Warriors. Donald Trump tries to bully anyone who stands up to him, including Nancy Pelosi. But in Nancy Pelosi and Barack Obama, he may have met his match. Both Michael Jordan and Donald Trump like to keep score. Michael Jordan liked to win championships, six championships. Donald Trump likes to win elections, but at what cost and what ends? Michael Jordan values his family. Donald Trump uses family members and others as part of his cast in his reality program, his current reality program. Michael Jordan was deeply affected by the, the mirth, excuse me, death and murder of his father. Donald Trump has tried many times and continues to murder the rule of law. Many athletes would do anything to win. That's a given. To what degree will this president or any president do anything to win, no matter what the cost? Michael Jordan has won many trophies. Donald Trump has trophy wives, and in the past, trophy girlfriends. Now, I want to put this out there, that when I sign off, listen to the end credits. There are exceptional people that put this program together, but the caveat is, this opinion and opinions are mine and mine only. One other thing, I mentioned the TV show Penny Dreadful. Growing up at a certain point in my life, my favorite movie that I could watch anytime was West Side Story. And I love the dance scene in the community center in West Side Story. And by the way, I believe they're remaking a movie of West Side Story. I look forward to that whenever that happens. The best dance scene I've seen on television in recent memory was a dance scene in one of the episodes of Penny Dreadful, which takes place in L.A. around 1938. And it's with the Chicanos in a dance hall, the Pachucas. This scene was so well choreographed that I would go back and watch it again and again and again. But the program is addressing in many ways the others. And that to me 
seems still relevant, whether it's the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, and now our time frame in 2020. Now, I'm going to ask for one other favor before we sign off. At the end of each episode, there's a rating system. I'm not a, an Uber driver. I don't care if you give me a bad rating or a good rating. I believe feedback is really important. It's constructive. So whether you agree or disagree with me and what I have said, I want to hear from you. There's a, there's a place where you can write comments. I value that. In some senses, getting a negative comment is as important, if not more important, than a positive comment. And I think that's going to enhance what we're trying to do with this podcast, Artful Periscope. Till next time, I'm Larry Davidson. Bye-bye. The Artful Periscope podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Crisafaro, Sound editors and engineers, Dean Meyer and Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at larrydavidsonsproductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. She tied you to her kitchen chair. She broke your throne and she cut your hair.